It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. Yesterday, we spent a little time on January 6th. And, and you know, lots of responses. Uh, lots of responses, uh, mostly on the side of, um, I can't believe that they've gotten away with the rewrite. Most people say, I remember January 6th for what it was. A treasonous insurrection. An attempted coup. A spoiled, no good, narcissistic person not wanting to face reality. Uh, lots of responses of people agreeing that, you know, what made this country exceptional was that that bloodless transfer of ideological power that now is gone. And the, the thing is, is the fact that we haven't learned the lesson, the fact that we're, we're not learning the lesson, we're not holding people, the right people accountable yet, means that the next one potentially could happen. Also, lots of responses from the other day. Uh, my response uh, to Teamsters President Sean O'Brien meeting with Donald Trump. Um, in fact, you know, the email that I, <laughs> out of all the emails that I get, the one that that grabbed me, caught my attention, uh, was from James, <laughs> who writes, Congratulations! You made me more depressed than all the other news stations combined. He said, I almost threw up watching that picture of Trump with your Teamster president. He said, we had the Reagan Democrat curse words, and now we have the Trump Teamsters. He said, I spent 50 years working with an, with engineer Republicans who think they are in the 1%. I have never been a union member, though I come from Pittsburgh and knew many. He said, union leaders like you are the only hope for saving our democracy. He said, the rich moneyed interests will never be on our side. He said, I remember Harry Truman running down uh, do-nothing Republicans and the rich. He said, I went to a rally on the north side of Pittsburgh uh, for Kennedy and stood about 10 feet from Harry as he exited the library. I heard the crowd yelling, give him hell, Harry. All poor people. He said, I drove past a row of Cadillac limos by the Hilton Hotel on the way where Eisenhower was giving a speech for Nixon. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, and I say this all the time. The reality is, is the moneyed interests don't care what puppets are out in front. All they care is their tax breaks are, are, are protected. They care that their power is protected. And Trump will ensure that corporate interest, that the moneyed interest, will be well protected. And you look at his only accomplishment. His only accomplishment really was the tax breaks that he gave to very wealthy people. Didn't help you, didn't help me, didn't help working people. In fact, what little working people got, they're clawing back. And this is one of those moments where you go, um, we need a strong, vibrant labor movement. We need a strong, vibrant labor movement of people standing up for workers' rights. You know, as Sean Fain said, you know, we need to be fighting these, these billionaires with every shred of our being. 
That's what the labor movement is about. Uh, so, you know, when when James you know, says, you know, I, I almost I almost threw up, uh, that wasn't my intention. My intention was to to get people angry. My intention was to wake people up to the reality is, is we're we're potentially in a position where in a couple of months, the, the, the progress that has happened can all be wiped away. And all we hear from the mainstream corporate controlled media is how bad things are. You know, Joe Biden's ruining the economy. Ruining the economy for who? Because you ask most working people, the economy has been pretty bad for them for, for, for years. The fact that wages for the, the bottom portion of the, of the workforce is actually going up, um, that makes the top folks not thrilled. The fact that we're talking about moving away from some bad economic ideology the fact that we're we're moving in a direction that is hopefully going to reward work by reunionizing this country. The reality is, if we're going to reunite the country, we've got to reunionize. But we're not going to do that because we're too ripped and shredded apart. And that's by design. Understand, you know, Trump isn't the reason that we're torn apart. The moneyed interests are. The people who control our media, the people who are pulling the strings, not the puppets out in front, not our elected officials, not the people who are on, on Meet the Depressed, not, not those people, but the moneyed interests who it's in their best interest for us to hate each other, for us to tear into each other. And when we come back, I'm going to have a conversation with Joe Walsh, former Illinois congressman. Uh, now political pundit, never Trumper, now, I'm not going to say Democrat, I'm going to say uh, fighter for democracy. And, you know, the thing is, and, and if you would have told me in 2010 that Joe Walsh and I would be friendly, I would have questioned that. <laughs> but when we come back, uh, my, a conversation with, with Joe Walsh. Stick around. This is The Rick Smith Show. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I think we've heard just about everything you're going to hear on January 6th. Uh, the, the, the historical rewrite, again, right in front of us. And predictable. I mean, I think, I think we knew this was coming. But still, I got to tell you, it's still somewhat surprising to me. And here to share some thoughts on where we are, where this is going, and maybe... You know, some thoughts on January 6th that we haven't heard a thousand times. Uh, that's why I've asked our good friend Joe Walsh to come talk with us. And Joe's a former Illinois congressman, former Republican presidential candidate, and the host of White Flag with Joe Walsh, one of my favorite podcasts. Joe, thanks for taking time for us. Rick Smith, for you anytime, my friend. Good to be with you. So, 
look, you know, we've we've I think we've heard everything we're probably ever going to yeah. hear about January sixth, uh, but I think it's an important day, and I think it's one of these things that. Uh, all of us remember where we were, what we were doing. So what were you doing on that day? I, uh, and you know, what's interesting, Rick, I get accused all the time on social media uh, by people who say I'm obsessed with January 6th and, and I am obsessed with it. And I, and I, and I know you probably are, are as well because it had never happened before. I, and I think, like when you when you shut up for a minute and sit back and think about what it was, right? Like a bunch of Americans violently tried to overthrow an election. When you think that that happened here and that it happened all because for the first time in American history, a sitting American president lost an election, but was such an effing coward he couldn't accept the result. Yep. It, it just easily, Rick, once a month, I think that. Like, oh, my God. Think about what happened that day. Um, I sat and watched it on TV and cried. And I cried for a couple hours because I worked in that building, as you know. And it, it, it just it hit me. I cried for two hours. Then I got pissed. And then I went on the radio that night and I got really pissed. As you probably did. No, I was I was beyond angry uh, because look, you know the one thing that you could say about this country is uh, the amazing the 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 exceptional part of this is uh, for the first time in the history of humanity, you had an ideological transfer of power without blood loss. Uh, you go back to you know John Adams leaving uh, the first time in the history of humanity that of, of recorded history of there being an ideological transfer of power without blood being shed. And on that day, that history was broken. It's uh, I'll give the credit to Amy McGrath in Kentucky, who ran against Mitch McConnell, uh, Democrat Amy McGrath. She said this a few days ago. She said January 6th is the most shameful day in our country's history. I love the way she put that. We've had tragic days, right? Pearl Harbor, September 11th. But January 6th was the most shameful day in our history because, on the, Rick, on those other tragic days, people attacked us. Other countries, other people attacked us. We attacked ourselves on January 6th. Yeah. That, that's shameful. Shameful. And not just that. And the, the, part, that, the part that, and you hit this a moment ago. Uh, that we had a, a petulant child that, that was elected president who couldn't accept the fact that, that he lost. And, and you know, every other time that's happened, um, you know, someone with, with grace conceded and said, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll take it next time. Um, this, this, I'm, this is the remarkable part in all this because this isn't, this isn't who I grew up believing we were as a country. Um. I've said repeatedly for five years now, Trump is unfit to be president. A lot of people have said that. And there are a lot of reasons for that. He's a traitor. He's a criminal. He's a pathological liar. He's a psychopath. But Rick, he's unfit because this is, I, 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 I'm sure there are other people in history like this. Trump is incapable of caring about anything but himself. He's in. Capable, so, so January 6th, 
he loses an election. I, I'm almost defending Trump because he's humanly incapable of putting the nation's interest before his own. He just can't do it. Again, it's almost not his fault because that's how he's made up. But that's that's what led to it. He lost an election and he couldn't do what was best for the country. And you know what, Rick, that always pisses me off. And I know you know this, how we rewrite history. And I was on the radio in 2020. Trump began lying about that election months before the election. Not just people months. Forget, people forget this. Right. He he set the table for months before the election. I see. I would argue not just months. This was the narrative in 2015. If you remember, Fair. you look. If I lose, they stole it. Uh, that was Fair. always the narrative because you're right. Uh, it's all about him. It's always been all about him. And and are, are, are we surprised? What is surprising? And again, we've always known Trump is a narcissist. All the, all those things. We've always known that. We've always known that he was never going to concede. He's always you know a, a child. All that. All that. What's surprising to me is the entire Republican establishment that went along with it. The entire Republican electorate that hasn't rejected him. That's the part that I'm I'm just I'm mind blown by. So that's the story. Rick, that's the story. Because again, here we are three years removed from an attempted coup, uh, all at the hands of one man. And yet that man is gonna be the Republican party nominee for president in 2024. And you and I have talked right now, I think he's got a better than 50-50 shot at getting reelected, but we'll get there. Forget about the general election for a moment. This guy is an insurrectionist. He didn't have the balls to accept an election result loss. He's everything every Republican mother and father do not want their kids to be. And yet, he remains the leader of the party. Forget about McCarthy, McConnell, all of my former colleagues in Congress. They, they don't lead. The reason that they stuck with him and are sticking with him now is because, and America's got to wrap their... I, I, I keep wanting to swear. America needs to wrap their freaking arms around the fact that, as you said, it's the entire party. The base of the party is his. And Rick, the base of my former party does not believe Jan 6 was a bad day. They just don't. No, no, they tell this, me that every day. No, this is the rewrite. I mean, this is, you know, it was a patriotic day. In fact, you know, uh, I had someone the other day tell me it was just like any other day. And I go, I don't know what you do in your house, uh, but in my house, we don't take a dump on the floor and wipe it on the walls. I don't know how that's like any other day, but yet that's what we did. Uh, that's what we saw happen in our nation's capital. And, and again, I, I go back to who thinks that? Who does that? What kind of a person does? What kind of people do that? Because it happened multiple times throughout the capital. Who does that? Um, you've heard me say this before, Rick, the base of my former party is radicalized. Let's, and and, and a, a big part of that is they, they no longer accept basic truths. Now, here's the um, thing, Joe. I mean, this is the, so. this is the thing that gets me. Um, now, quite frankly, you and I, you know, back in 2010s probably would have been, you know, at each Fighting. other, you know, growing hands, probably, uh, you were the radical in my view of, of the Republican party back then. 
uh, this this is is so much worse than 2010. How did that happen? So you're you're right. You and I would have fought ten years ago. I was a radical. I was like the face of the Tea Party, but I was a radical on policy. You and I would have fought like cats and dogs on policy. Um, I, I, today in Congress, well, I, I'm today I'm no longer a Republican because what happened? Well, because when Trump came on the scene, Rick, uh, policy stopped. Uh, um, um, I believe in free markets and limited government, and and I believe in in uh, open legal immigration. Policy stopped, and the party became a cult. It no longer matters where you are as a Republican on policy. It's where you are with him. And then when you extend that, Rick, the rule of law doesn't matter anymore. Um, an election, election results don't matter. So this is like a million miles beyond policy. I left the party because I couldn't, even though I probably agree with Trump on set 60, 70 percent of policy, I couldn't support a party that proudly had a criminal and, in my view, a traitor as its leader. Uh, I just, I couldn't, like, I believed in, in in a border wall. Trump said, screw the Constitution, screw Congress, I'm going to get my own border wall. It was all a lie, but, but you can't do that because he's not a king. And, and, Rick, most of my Republican supporters have told me the last five or six years, they don't mind if Trump acts like a king as long as they get the stuff they want. I couldn't go there. Yeah, the ends justify the means. Yes. I couldn't go there. I, I, I love our democracy too much. I love, I believe in the rule of law too much. Donald Trump committed crimes to try to overturn that election. That's what Jack Smith believes. That's what I believe. Most Republican voters don't care. So let me ask you this, because, you know, I, I say this all the time, I, you know, before Donald Trump, I had a number of friends like you, uh, people that we would argue uh, over policy over uh, constantly. You know, we would spar constantly. And at the end of it, uh, we would we would slap each other on the back, have a good laugh and walk away. You know, you know I got you. You got me. Whatever. And, you know, nobody win, nobody lose. But, you know, it, it was a good exercise in. You know, one, you know, understanding issues and understanding your part of the arguments and and it could it was it was good, you know, good guy kind of arguing kind of stuff. Those folks have gone away. It's now and I liken it to boxing. If you if you were ever a boxer, you know, when when I was boxing, it was you know, you get in a spar, it was the science of boxing. You know, you're, you're trying to score points. You're not trying to beat the tar out of each other, but you're just trying to you know just work on jabs, this and that. Uh, now it's like now you got to beat the tar out of each other. And this, how do we get back to, how do we get back to where we're talking about policy? And it isn't. I've got to kill you over if you don't agree with me. And see, I, I think Rick, like, like it's important to understand that Trump's not the cause of this. Trump's Trump's like the result of how of how broken we are and how divided we are. Trump's not the cause of this. He's the ugly, 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 ugly result. Um, look. You know, brother, of the people, by the people, for the people, our government is us. This thing called the democracy, um, to keep this thing going, there's, there's, there's certain things we got to do, the people need to do. And I'd argue we're no longer doing what we need to do. And, and, and foremost, Rick, is what you just alluded to. 
if there's no tolerance among people in a democracy, the democracy doesn't hold. If, if, if you want to kill your political opponent or destroy him, a democracy can't hold. I'd argue if you view your political opponent as your enemy, a democracy can't hold. We've got a responsibility to, to uh, disagree respectfully. And, and we don't do that anymore. We don't. That's not the fault of politicians. That's not. And by the way, Rick, this isn't just MAGA. This isn't just my crazy right. Go, I go on MSNBC and the left all the time. They do the same damn thing. They do not listen to people who disagree with them. They despise people who disagree with them. Democracy's done if we don't do something about this. Do you see any way forward? Is holding Trump, let me ask you this way, is holding Trump off the off the ballot, uh, which I'm against? Uh, let me start there. Are you, are you in favor of, of holding Trump off the ballot? And, and don't get mad at me. I'm not going to give you a politician's answer. I would rather kick his ass at the ballot box. There but, you went, swore. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, I, I kick his butt at the ballot box. But, Rick... What Colorado did, what Maine did, is every bit as much a part of our democratic process as going to vote every two years. We're a nation of laws as well, right? Um, uh, Colorado has the authority to determine who qualifies for their ballot. So my stance is, let this whole process sort itself out. Colorado did what they did. They have a right to do that in our country. Trump has a right to appeal. The Supreme Court will have a right to rule as they do. I support the process. I'd rather kick his butt at the ballot box. But look, if 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 the Supreme Court rules that he can't be on the ballot, we accept that. Right? Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, I'm I'm with the first part. I think we have to I think he has to be beaten at the ballot box. I fear the martyr thing. Uh, I, I fear the the violence that could come out of uh, of him being held off. I, let me ask you that. Do you? Yeah, do you... but Rick, but Rick, but Rick, but Rick. You don't use that as an excuse not to follow the law. Like I've had people tell me, "Oh, don't convict Trump because then he's going to become a martyr." Like if Jack Smith, can... well, well, you no, because then what you're saying is Trump's above the law. No, you can. We're afraid to convict him because we worry about how, like David Axelrod, screw David Axelrod. <laughs> what the hell? These, these guys piss me off. David Axelrod last week said, oh, Colorado and Maine kicking him off the balance is going to tear the country apart. Anything with Trump will tear the country apart. But if you have that as your guide, then Trump is never held accountable. No, that's an excellent point. That is an excellent point. Uh, and and here's the thing, you may you 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 may fall off your chair. Uh, you I think you've actually convinced me. I, I actually I actually agree with you. Well, Rick, because I know you agree with this, politics should never determine what the courts do. So we shouldn't convict Trump because of politics, but we shouldn't be afraid to convict him because of the politics. Same thing with these courts in these states. They have the authority to do what they do, did, and Trump has appealed. And I think, I, Rick, I think the courts will overturn what Colorado and Maine did. But that's our democracy working itself out. No, that's an excellent point. Excellent point, Joe. Uh, as always, it's great talking with you. I appreciate the thoughts. Uh, always learn something Love from you. Love you, Rick Smith. Love you, Rick Smith. 
Love you back, Joe. Thanks so much. Our good buddy, Thanks, Joe man. Walsh. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Going to take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Do national security concerns outweigh the right of workers to form a union? That question was being debated on this day in labor history. The year was 2003. The head of the Transportation Security Administration, James Loy, made the case that collective bargaining would be an impediment to the war on terrorism. He signed an order that prohibited unionization by passenger and baggage screeners. The move was just one of several that eroded federal workers' rights in the name of national security in the aftermath of 9-11. The TSA was founded in the months after the 9-11 attacks by the Bush administration. Prior to the TSA, screening was done by private contractors run by the airlines. With the new organization, more than 45,000 screeners became part of the federal workforce. Massachusetts Senator Teddy Kennedy disagreed with the Bush administration's position that these workers could not join a union. He released a statement saying, it's not Homeland Security, it's union busting. The TSA workers did not give up their fight to join a union. For the better part of a decade, they continued to organize and make their case. In 2011, the workers voted to become part of the American Federation of Government Employees. It was the largest union election by federal workers in United States history. There are limitations to the union, however, such as the screeners cannot go on strike, but the union can advocate for safe and fair workplace conditions. When the union was finally recognized, President of AFGE John Gage issued a statement. He declared, Today marks the recognition of a fundamental human right for 40,000 patriotic federal employees who have been disenfranchised since the inception of the agency. Today, nearly 16,000 screeners have joined the union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. For those watching on Free Speech TV, thanks so much for tuning in. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Be sure to tune in tomorrow as we will again be picking up on the economic stuff going on for our radio audience. We'll be back after the break. But before we go, I got to tell you, this this moment that we're in, if we can't figure out if we can't figure out how to how to find our way back to talking to each other, you know, as Joe Walsh and I were talking about there a minute ago, because seriously, I before before Trump, I had lots of people that, you know, we didn't agree on anything, but we talked a lot. And and we we could find some some way forward. We didn't agree, but we could find a pathway forward. We're not that country anymore, unfortunately. Uh, and, and seriously, I think we do. I think we need to find. We need to find that way. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Uh, for our free speech audience, thanks for being here. Everybody else, back after this. Unfortunately, in the short time we Homo sapiens have existed on this four and a half billion year old planet Earth, we've trashed the place. Climate change, deforestation, forever chemicals, 
desertification, plastics and everything, etc. Fortunately, though, we large-brain hominids have evolved an almost magical resource that promises to be our salvation. Billionaires! One of the priceless benefits of amassing a multibillion-dollar, self-regenerating pile of wealth is that it automatically establishes you as a genius. Never mind that you've most likely acquired your stash through some combination of inheritance, grift, rank exploitation, tax dodging, and such, you're suddenly treated as a savant whose most fanciful nonsense is now taken seriously by the establishment. Thus, we presently have two overstuffed money hogs, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, preaching that Earth is a lost cause. But no problem, for they are designing space technologies that will let a cadre of select humans escape doom by colonizing the moon and Mars. But hey, bozos, what then? You think our blue-green planet is hell? Try living with no air, water, soil, little gravity, and zero protection from the incessant bombardment of cosmic radiation. Well, postulate the billionaire space cadets, we will just geoengineer Mars and the moon, transforming them into an Earth-like oasis. But wait, as astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson pointed out a decade ago, if you had the power to terraform Mars into Earth, then you had the power to turn Earth back to Earth. This is Jim Hightower saying, Tyson later said he'd only go to Mars if the designer of the colony had sent their mother first. Nice, but I have no doubt Musk and Bezos would gladly sacrifice mom to advance their egos. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history... The year was 1922. That was the day Chicago building trades began to split over the much-hated Landis Award. The building trades had always enjoyed strong solidarity, built through years of sympathy strike action. By 1921, they were involved in a bitter dispute with the city's employers who had been on the open shop offensive since the end of World War I. Contractors attempted to impose deep wage cuts and instituted a lockout when the building trades refused to go along. Judge Kennesaw Landis, who sent close to 100 IWW members to prison during World War I, arbitrated the dispute and issued his award that fall. Considered a major blow to the building trades, his award outlined eight points on behalf of the employers. It imposed deep wage cuts of anywhere from 15 to 40 percent, practically abolished the right to strike, and undermined years of established work rules. As the Chicago Federation of Labor and Building Trades Council geared up for the fight, the employers created their own Citizens Committee to enforce the award. The Chicago Federation of Labor noted that of the committee's 176 members, only 54 were based in the city, and of those, only one had any connection with the industry. And on this day, the Chicago Building Trades Council called for a strike. Some unions refused to abide by the call. The building trades split with the carpenters and painters among those in favor of striking, first the bricklayers, electrician, and iron workers voting to honor the award. A reported 60,000 building tradesmen walked off the job anyway, but the strike soon failed. The trades continued to erode the award's strength, and by 1926, many local agreements simply superseded its enforcement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Listening to the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. (laughs) 
So on December 22nd, President Joe Biden and the administration published the final rule on the implementation of the executive order to use project labor agreements on all construction projects over $35 million. So any project that federal funds are used in, roads, bridges, you name it, uh, you know, clean energy programs, anything over $35 million going to have to be done with a project labor agreement. And you go, but Rick, you know, what, what's, what's a project labor agreement? You know, what, what is this thing for which you speak? And, and all it really is, is an agreement between the contractor and the workers on what the conditions are going to be, what the wages are going to be. It basically solves a lot of problems before anything happens. It's, it's a mutual agreement on how things are going to get done. And the right basically losing their minds over it. Uh, now, President Biden, and, and look, I give Joe Biden the ultimate credit in being the most pro-union working president in the history of our country. Uh, this is a guy who at every turn is standing up for working people. And when this when this 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 finalized uh, rule came out, uh, Joe Biden you know came out and, and had this to say about project labor labor agreements. And look, uh, I'm I'm a hundred percent in favor of this. And here's what here's what the president had to say. We're using a tool that iron workers here know very well, called project labor agreements. I know you all know it, but folks who may be watching this may not fully understand it. Simply put, these agreements that contractors, subcontractors, and unions put in place before a construction site gets underway, before the construction begins. They ensure that major projects are handled by well-trained, well-prepared, highly skilled workers. And they ward off problems. They resolve disputes ahead of time, ensuring safer work sites, avoiding disruptions in work stoppages that can cause expensive delays down the line. And that makes a big difference for the American taxpayer. Because when big construction projects are completed efficiently and with the highest degree of professionalism, it's good for the American taxpayer. That's not hyperbole, that's a fact. We don't talk about it, though. We don't talk about how y'all save the American taxpayer's money. Yeah, we, we don't seem to talk about that. Uh, but the right, oh boy, the right losing their ever-loving flippin' minds. And in fact, the folks over at the F Channel, uh, the Fox folks, uh, this is how they reported uh, the, the project labor agreements. Uh, they reported that PLAs are, are project-specific collective bargaining agreements that steer taxpayer-funded contracts to unionized contractors, granting union workers a virtual monopoly to build public works project. No, that's not it at all. What it says is, it says whoever does this work, and that's open to bid for everyone, whoever does this work, these are the conditions. This is the floor. This is what, this, this is what the job will be. And we're going to compete not on low-road employers, not on people who are going to cheat their workers out of wages, not on employers who are going to use, you know, 
undocumented labor, not on people who are going to use unskilled labor, not on people who are going to cut corners, not on people who are going to do all the unscrupulous things that we see in the construction industry sometimes. No, we're going to we're going to get good, well-paid, skilled craftspeople to come and do this work. This is the right way to do things. And Understand, the right wing, they're, they're losing their minds because this benefits working people. This doesn't benefit corporate America. This doesn't benefit the, the 1% or the handful. This benefits working people and communities. The money that, that goes into paying the prevailing wage that goes to these workers because it's covered under a project labor agreement as part of the agreement, that stuff goes back into the community. So when I hear, and, and this is one of those things that blows my mind, when I hear uh, someone on the right, one of these right-wing think tanks, say, which is going to cost us more money. Um, no. In fact, you know, the examples that, that I've seen, you know, when you, when you factor in the fact that when you have someone who knows what they're doing, a much more skilled worker, the fact that you're paying them a better wage means you get better quality work. You get better outcomes. You get faster work. And one of the things that I, I, I love to point out is there's a perfect example, you know, the tale of two bridges, as I like to say. Uh, there's a bridge out in California that Arnold Schwarzenegger decided, hey, we're not going to use project labor agreements. We're not going to use uh, prevailing wage laws. We're going to go low road. We're going to get Chinese labor and Chinese steel. We're going we're gonna to do the, the lowest road possible. We're going to get fly-by-night contractors to come do shoddy work. And what they got was a shoddy bridge. That's never going to be done. Massive overruns. Nowhere near done on time. In fact, I don't know that it's ever going to get done. And then you have what was the replacement of the Tappan Zee, uh, which I think they're, they're calling the Cuomo Bridge now. Um, done on time. Done under budget. With a project labor agreement with prevailing wage, and it is a beautiful bridge, driven over it numerous times. Benefited the taxpayers in multiple ways. We have a wonderful piece of infrastructure that's going to be there for generations to come, and those jobs that were created, those wages that were earned, reverberated through the local economy, supported families, supported small businesses, and, and helped create and maintain a local building construction trade. Because what we know is when you destroy these, these safeguards, when you destroy these, these, these guardrails, what happens is you lose your local construction trade. And what you end up getting is a bunch of fly-by-night contractors who come by, do shoddy work, and then off to the next place where they're going to rip them off. This is the reality. And this is what I think Joe Biden and the administration understands. You get what you pay for. We used to understand that. Remember that that, that guy who used to fly the kite with the key on it? You know, penny wise, pound foolish. You, you remember that guy? This is where we are. And I think, and, and, and good on Joe Biden. Uh, this is where we should be spending our money. This is where we should be investing our money. Investing in getting the best infrastructure, the best building projects we can get, but also investing in workers and in families. 
This investment in, in the now and in the future is extremely important. It's something that we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time this election cycle talking about. We're going to talk about cult of personalities. We're going to talk about everything but the fact that Biden is investing in the future of this country. And I, I wish the administration would talk more about the investments that they've made. Just a little bit that's been done so far. There are massive investments coming down the pike. And this, this is a small part of it. But to see the Fox Newses of the world and the right wing lose their mind because workers are going to make a decent wage is, is really mind-blowing. And, and my worker friends, when you watch the F channel and you hear them say, well, this is just a payoff to the big unions. No, no, those are union workers making good wages, family-sustaining wages, career-style wages. The kind of wages you pay, you pay someone who know what they're doing and do good quality work. When you hear them say things like this, you should be angry. Working people should be offended, should be furious. When you've got the F channel saying, well, you know, those construction workers aren't worth a decent wage. Because that's really what they're saying. You know, I have, I've had right-wing you know, commentators and right-wing think tank people tell me, you know, if we did away with those things, that project labor agreement, those prevailing wages, if we did away with that, we'd save 25% on building contracts. We could build schools 25% cheaper. And the reality is that's ridiculous because labor isn't even 25% of the cost of building. Materials are your biggest, your biggest costs. What they're really saying is, because, look, if they were able to save 25%, it means the workers are working for free. And in many cases, paying back. But that's never going to happen. But what they're really saying is, uh, we think we could cut those workers' wages by 25%. And when did we become a country that says, you know what? I want you to take a pay cut. Instead of going, hey, how do we get a pay increase? How do we all do better? So for me, good on Joe Biden. This... This is the way forward, ensuring that people at their kitchen table can pay their bills, keep a roof over the head, put roof, kids, clothes on their kids' back, food on the table, opportunity for the future, investing in the future. This, this is good stuff, and I want to I say good on Joe Biden for what he has done with this executive order. Uh, what we need, what we need, uh, we need some more politicians in D.C. and in state capitals to be standing up for working people like Joe Biden's done for us. That simple. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, you know, 2023 was really a, an amazing year for worker activism. And, you know, all across the nation, we saw workers taking to the streets, demanding better wages, hours, conditions from auto workers to 
actors, nurses, to healthcare workers, to warehouse workers, and well, everywhere in between. And the message was quite clear. We demand better. And you know, coming out of the pandemic, when people were told that they were frontline heroes, uh, they were essential, uh, people internalized that. that. That was important to them. And we're at a historic moment. And, you know, there are workers who are saying now is the time. And we're in a historic workers uh, moment for workers in this country. And my next guest, uh, he says that the Biden administration has risen to the challenge, has met the moment by fighting for reforms and helping working people exercise their rights on the job. That's why I've asked David Madeline to come talk with us. David's the strategic director of the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. He's also the author of the great book, uh, Reunion, how to how bold labor reforms can repair, revitalize, and reunite the United States. David, thanks for taking time for us. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. I always enjoy it. Thanks for having me. So you think the Biden administration has risen to the moment? They've done what they need to do to help in this moment? Uh, walk me through this. Yeah, well, sir, there's always more, but the Biden administration has been, in my lifetime and perhaps many lifetimes, the best uh, most pro-labor administration there is. You can start with just sort of the bully pulpit. You know, president walked the picket line with UAW. I don't know of any other president that's that's done that. He also verbally supported a lot of other workers that were trying to form unions like at Starbucks and Amazon um, and the like. He's appointed, you know, he's appointed, the people he's appointed to key labor positions, the first head of the Department of Labor, a union leader, Marty Walsh, um, the head of the NLRB, former union side lawyer. Uh, these are big, big decisions. And then there's a whole host of policies that we can get into from, you know, these the Inflation Reduction Act, which is these investments in green jobs that have all these, I call strings on spending that promote uh, labor unions and good jobs. So I, I think, you know, I will go on and on, but I want to at least stop there. He's been great. It's really been impressive all of the things that President Biden has done for labor unions and a real contrast to prior presidents. You know, it's easy to forget that. And, you know, we've, we recently saw a, a labor leader, the Teamsters president, go down and meet with with Donald Trump. And and a lot of, you know, Teamster members, you know, reached out to me after my response, you know, saying, well, you know, what's what's wrong with, you know, you know, the Teamster president going down and meeting with Trump? After all, you know, he, he represents workers. And I'm going, do you did you forget how bad Trump was? Uh, as president for working people and just how good Joe Biden has been for, for working people and how, how important the policies that he's been moving are to help working families. I mean, I think this is really an interesting moment that we're in. And I think it's important to remember, and you guys have a piece out, uh, eight ways the Biden administration has fought for working people by strengthening unions. And, and I got to tell you, I think whether you're in a union or you're not, a strong labor movement helps working people across the board by raising standards, uh, raising conditions, raising wages and benefits and all of that stuff that everyone benefits from. Yeah, uh, you're preaching to the choir. Everyone does benefit from the higher wages and benefits that unions create. They spread across the labor market when unions are, are strong. There's even things you, you wouldn't think about. Like we did this study a couple of years ago about economic mobility, the sort of ability to rise up above your parents, sort of your conditions of birth. Communities that have higher labor density had greater have greater economic mobility, even when you control for a whole host of other factors, education and all of those kinds of things. 
because what unions do benefits everyone. These, you know, and so that's really, it's certainly I want union workers to do better for themselves. But I also, the reason I'm such a strong supporter is that it makes communities and the country better when we have these material benefits that they provide and the voice, the stronger voice that the employers listen to us more and the politicians listen to us more when we're part of a union. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, that that idea you know, that that work should be rewarded. You know, I go back to the you know the the Reagan era uh, quote that the, the best anti-poverty program is a job, and I have amended that to the best anti-poverty program is a union job with you know, livable wages, with with health security, with retirement security, with job security. Those are the things that a middle class, that a prosperous working class, were built on. And and I think Biden, in in, in not to get political on this, but I think the Biden uh, pathway, the vision that he has for this country is moving us back in that direction, away from hooray, you know, hooray for me and the heck with everybody else, and the one who dies with the most toys wins kind of mentality, uh, but back into more of a community mentality. And I think that's the that's the direction we need to be going. Yeah, well, the basic message, you know, he, he, for a long time, our economy has been do dominated by this trickle-down theory that you were highlighting that if the rich get rich, that somehow will benefit the rest of us. And instead, I, I see President Biden, and he will talk about this, is this middle out sort of theory. When you build a strong middle class, that your policies are designed to build a strong middle class, and that really benefits the whole country. That is what makes the economy stronger because you have reasons for business to invest. It's what makes our communities and our society better. So yeah, I really see a lot to this basic argument that uh, the Biden administration is pushing about uh, a stronger middle class and a stronger economy. And there's real policy behind it. And that's sort of also the, the point here is that this isn't just talk. It's actions working, you know, getting on the picket lines. It's passing major legislation with things like Davis-Bacon uh, policies in them that so ensure that when you're getting, a, you know, companies getting a government contract have to pay high rates that it can be the union rate rate at times. No, but here's the thing. And in looking at your piece, eight ways the Biden administration has fought for working people by strengthening unions. And we'll get links out on social media how folks can take a look at this. Number five is the one that grabbed me the most. Uh, taking an all of, of government approach to supporting worker organizing. You know, this is how my grandparents' generation built the most prosperous working class in history. This is a government that, that was decidedly on the side of workers and the idea that they wanted to encourage people organizing. You know, the prosperity that was built by my grandparents' generation didn't just happen out of thin air. It happened because of government policy and the National Labor Relations Act and a government that was saying, look, we want people to join and form unions. We want people to collectively bargain so that they can sit down with their employers and get better wages, hours, and conditions and, and deal with their problems locally. And that was a government policy. Uh, also, you know, government policy got us into the mess we're in. Uh, you go, you know, Reagan era forward, government policy is no, screw those workers. Uh, let's crush those unions and look where we are now. Yeah, well, I think I think you've got the history right. And I also think you've got Biden's role in, in the sort of all of government approach right too. So my read of the history is so union membership in up until the 1930s was always in the sort of teens or below uh, when most of the labor law was against it and made it very hard for workers to form unions, you know, even having, you know, the police coming out and beat people, all those kind of horrible things. 
passed the National Labor Relations Act in 1937. And then during World War II, we have these labor boards that encourage workers to join unions and, and get a collective bargaining agreement. Density shoots up to a third, and it basically stays at that high level until we pass, until Congress passed Taft-Hartley in 1947. And then private sector density starts to go down. It's sort of hidden because public sector workers get the right to form unions around the 1950s. And so more people are joining in public sector, but it looks like wage unions are stagnating. And then we've seen this sharp decline over 30, 40 years when policy has not supported worker organizing the same way. And now we have President Biden just starting, just starting, because there's a lot more to do, but starting to have all of government lean towards workers. And you can see that, for example, he had this um, task force that was the heads of kind of every agency coming together and say, what can we do to help workers organize? And they came up with 70 recommendations. Some of them were really small bore, but some were pretty substantial issuing executive orders, for example, on project labor agreements that we were just talking about before we went on uh, air. And project labor agreements are these pre-hire agreements, basically almost a collective bargaining agreement for major construction projects. And so you're, you're basically working at union scale on, on these projects immediately. And that's just one of these 70 things that, that came out of this task force. Um, and that's, you know, this really nitty gritty thing that, that President, Obama, President Biden has been pushing for, for unions. And I see it as the kind of thing you know, we need a whole lot more. We really are going to need Congress to also act. Workers need to take action, but then Congress needs to act as well, pass things like the PRO Act uh, so that workers have a fair shot at joining a union and, and getting a collective bargaining agreement, not just joining the union, but actually getting the benefits of the union by getting that collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, and what we know, you know, project labor agreements, and again, I, this is something we've talked about on the program extensively over the years. What we know is, you know, that that money that goes to those workers reverberates through those those local economies, and and helps benefit not just the working people who are on those projects, uh, but the entire community. So it's it's smart policy in not just getting good qualified people, the most skilled people to do those jobs, but also to have that money reverberate through the local economy. It's a win win across the board. But yet, you know, I got my I got my you know, uh, ABC folks and I've got my right wing think tank folks who told me, no, no, we can't have such a thing, David, because if we would do away with prevailing wage, if we would do away with um, with PLAs, if we would do away with all this stuff, we could save we could save a quarter to a third on all building projects. Yeah, well, those kind of studies are, are usually missing the, a whole lot of actually what happens. You mean like reality? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the reality is, you know, labor on a lot of these big projects is only, you know, 5% or so of the cost. So they're immediately wrong. You can't increase costs by 30% by just getting workers paid a little bit more. But also the things that when you have good workers, good trained, skilled workers doing their jobs, you deliver the project on time and on budget, which saves money in the long run. You don't have labor stoppages, work stoppages, because workers aren't, you know, you know, don't want to show up or they're going to go on strike because they know they're going to get paid fairly. You also, you know, have the the job being done right the first time. You don't have to go back and redo it and, and fix repairs. So the good studies that control for sort of all these factors show basically no additional cost to government. And in fact, it's a good way to deliver good value 
for government because you're getting the projects on time and on budget and high quality. Sound investment, smart, smart policy. And I, I look at the tale of two bridges. Uh, on, on you got the one in California that's probably never going to get done. Done with cheap labor, Chinese labor, Chinese products, not under under prevailing wage, not with a project labor agreement. Probably never going to get finished. Uh, thanks to Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and the, that crowd. And then I look at the Tappan Zee out in New York, or the Cuomo Bridge now is what they're calling it. Uh, done with a project labor agreement. Done with prevailing wage. Done under budget. Uh, under time and complete and and fabulous. I've driven over a number of times. Uh, so for me, it's it's in what I see. Uh, you know, I don't need studies to show me what I can see with my own two eyes. Uh, but you know, I, I look. I, I look at the Biden administration and I look at these policies and and I think you know, I. I, I, I I'm concerned that not enough people know what's going on. We're, we're too blinded by what the mainstream corporate-controlled media is feeding us, which is all bad news. This is good stuff. This is important bread-and-butter kitchen table economic stuff. It's Because it, for me, it always comes, it's the economy, stupid, always. Yeah, well, that's why programs like yours matter so much. Um, but the question of sort of whose side is you on, are you on is the core to me. And workers are in motion right now they are demonstrating more than ever that they want to form unions they want higher wages they want better benefits they want a voice of the job public support for unions is nearly 70 percent we have half of workers saying they want to join a union if they could we have had more strikes in the past you know past year than we've had in quite some time same with more workers for trying to form unions and, and having petitions the big problem, the big question is, is all that worker action going to translate into uh, real gains? Some of it has. We had, you know, hundreds, thousands of workers got double digits wage increases because of their new contracts that they, you know, sometimes had to strike for. So there's some, but the big moves need to happen. And that is going to take policymakers getting on the side of workers. And I think Biden is doing a very good first step. More needs to be done, but it's clear he's very different than previous politicians. I don't remember, as I said again, any politician standing on the side of workers going to the picket line saying, I am with you workers and this company needs to get you a good contract. No, no, he evidently found Obama's comfortable shoes and and got there out on the picket line as Obama claimed he was going to. Just never, never seemed to find the way to do it. Uh, but I'm looking forward to the, that data. I'm looking forward to that union density uh, information. I'm hoping it goes up. I fear, I fear not, uh, which is why, again, we need to have uh, all 2024 is going to be an interesting year. But David Madeline, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, I look forward to having you coming back and, and tell us how that data works out. Rick, thanks. It's a pleasure. As always, good stuff. David Madlin, uh, Strategic Director of the American Worker Project there at the Center for American Progress. Also, check out his book, uh, Incredible Read, Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. We'll get links out on social media. Quick break. Right back. Stick around. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Thanks for tuning in to The Rick Smith Show. 
If you missed any portion of our program, make sure you check out the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you will find ours. Something I said got under your skin, on your nerves, or made you think, I want to hear about it. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. At Rick at the Ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.